Well, let's uh, get into God's word. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're continuing our series, Overcomer. Uh, we want to take some time to think about what that means in our lives. Certainly, we need to be overcomers in this day and age. Um, now, as you remember before, we talked about a number of different passages that talk about overcoming. The first one was in 1 John 5. In 1 John 5, we learn that overcoming is a process that we go through. In fact, we find that we are called overcomers. It says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So if you've been born of God, you're an overcomer. You, that's who you are. I mean, we sang about who Jesus is. Well, this is who we are. We are overcomers in him because we put our faith in Christ. And so being born of God is a first step. And part of that process goes on that we walk in faith. He goes on to say, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So as we start by faith in Jesus Christ, we continue to be overcomers as we believe God, as we trust God through uncertain times. And then it says, who is it except the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ? Who is it that over, except, uh, who, let me say that again. Who is it that overcomes the world except he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus is the one who was to come. Jesus is the divine one. Well, we looked at that the first week, and then in the next week, we looked at John chapter 16 and verse 33, where it says that Jesus says, I have overcome the world. He says, I have said these things. Remember these things pointing back to all the way to John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. Uh, and apart from me, you can bear much fruit. Uh, uh, apart from me? No, I said it backwards. Uh, we'll get my words together here this morning. You may have to pray for me. Uh, but uh, that we abide in him and he abides in us. And if we don't abide in him, we won't bear anything. But if we abide in him, we'll bear much fruit. And he says, I have said these things. The Holy Spirit is also one of the things he talked about in these things, walking in the spirit. That in me, that whole idea that we are in Christ. That we are in Christ, we may have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And you look at that and you think, well, that's good for you that you've overcome the world. But how do I overcome the world? In me. That's the key. If he's overcome, then when we're in him, we have overcome through him. And so part of our overcoming is being in Christ, walking in Christ, abiding in Christ. And then we looked at John 1, where he says that the, light, the darkness has not overcome the light. Darkness can't understand it, can't overcome it, can't overwhelm it. Light always wins. And so this passage today is found in John chapter 16, and it talks about overcoming together. Overcoming together as the church. And I want us to read this passage together and then I want to talk about it because uh, as we look at this passage, one of the key things is, is that we think about, well, we need to overcome together. We need to overcome as the church. 
But how can we do that in this environment when we're the church in dispersion? When some of us are at home, some of us are here in person, we're all over. And so we need to think about that. I want you to think about that as we read this passage. I want to start in verse 13 to kind of give you a little lead into it. 13 to 20 of uh, Matthew chapter 16. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, or the word prevail has also been translated by some, overcome it, against, uh, overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell, to tell no one that he was the Christ. So here's the passage. The focus is, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against, us, against it. God intended for overcoming to happen together, not individually. That's the main point of the passage. God intended for us to overcome the gates of hell together, not independently. And yet so many times we try to do and live our lives on our own. I, I'm, I'm just uh, uh, guilty of it as anybody else. I know that this week, uh, just this weekend, uh, one of, we have a, a well instead of uh, uh, at our house. We actually have two. One's an irrigation well and one's a regular well. And uh, it's for our, our neighborhood. And the irrigation well went down. And my tendency is, I'm just going to jump to it, try to get it fixed. And so I'm calling the phone, calling uh, the drilling company and saying, hey, we need you to come out and look at the well, figure out what's going on. And, and, and my, my thinking is not, I'm thinking together, I'm thinking me doing all this stuff, right? Because that's just jump in and fix it, right? And that's a mistake. And I realized it in the middle of that here, I'm getting ready to preach on together is better and I'm doing separate is faster and more efficient and so which one is it right and so my tendency is not to involve other people and then then you figure that out you figure out that you're, that, that you're not doing that whenever you find yourself kind of griping well nobody else is helping me well have you asked anybody no <laughs> well why don't you ask somebody and I ask people and they jump in right and so I began to realize exactly what I'm preaching is exactly what we need to be thinking as believers in Christ. God did not intend us to overcome all the things that are going on in our world by ourselves. Overcoming is not a, a singles event. It is a together event. That we as believers together, and, and you think, well, yeah, but... You know, how does that work in our day when we're scattered and when we're not together? You can pray for one another, can't you? Can't you text somebody and say, hey, I'm praying for you. What can I pray for you? 
I know that some in our church family have, have reached out to those who are stuck at home and they're trying to figure out how, and they, they can't get out and they're immune compromised. And, and I've heard great stories, stories where people have gotten involved and, and called somebody and said, hey, let me bring you some groceries. Let me do this for you or that for you. And I'm just like, wow, may their tribe increase. That's exactly what this should look like. A text, an email, reaching out. I even thought about, and I've heard this, and you have to do this carefully with, with caution, but if you've got a group immunity, say with another family, well, why not join together on Sunday morning and watch the service? So that you have a little bit of kind of in-person at home. And you may not be able to do that. You may be immune compromised to the point that you can't do that. And so I wouldn't encourage that. But if you have somebody, another family that you've kind of been close to and you've kind of immune compromised together, immune compromised together, immune group immunity together, then maybe maybe that's a step. Maybe that's something that needs to happen. But we need to understand who we are collectively as a church. And you know, in history, in church history, This is not unusual for the church to be in dispersion, for the church to be scattered. In fact, you see that in the book of James where he talks about the church in dispersion. He uses that terminology. You see that in the church in Rome where they met in the catacombs. They weren't able to meet openly. In fact, it was scary to do that. Uh, I read a, a, a book called Steal Away Home about... Charles Spurgeon and Thomas Johnson. Thomas Johnson was an American slave. Charles Spurgeon was an English preacher. And and it talks about in Chronicles, Thomas Johnson's coming to faith, coming to Christ, and then him meeting with other believers. And he he had to do it secretly at night. And how God gave him the opportunity to connect with Charles Spurgeon and for Charles Spurgeon to begin to teach him uh, how to become a preacher. And I was just, I was just an incredible story. Thinking about God's smuggler, if you ever read Brother Andrew's book about sneaking Bibles into the, into the, um, behind the Iron Curtain. Sergei Kordakov, who was a, uh, uh, in a book called The Persecutor, who, who uh, uh, persecuted people, uh, 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 went into, and he was uh, in, in Russia, he was, I think, KGB, and he went into uh, homes that were having a church service, and he would beat people up and run them off. And I remember that he, he talked about doing that in different places, and he kept seeing this one girl that was at these different places, and he had beat her up three different times and it broke him because he thought how can she keep following Jesus when I've beat her up all these times and he ended up coming to faith coming to Christ and so I I, I just I think about the ichthus the the fish and and it seems like you know we stick them on our car we stick them in different places and we don't think much of it that was a secret symbol for Christians back in in Roman times and they would they would be talking to someone and they would might have a stick in their hand and they would just kind of do an arc they would just draw an arc one arc as they were talking it's just like they were drawn in the sand drawn in the dirt and if the other person who was standing across with them drew an arc they ended up with a fish And they knew that the other person understood this was the secret sign, so they must be a believer in Christ. Ichthus, meaning Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, each one of the letters standing for one of the Greek words there. And I think about how what we are facing is not unusual for the church. 
And the church has always overcome. And we need to be those who are overcomers. Together is better. Ecclesiastes 9, 4, 9, and 10, uh, 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Scripture is replete with passages that talk about together is better. And even in this environment, together is better. There's an African proverb. It's kind of interesting. It says, if you want to travel fast, travel alone. If you want to travel far, go together. I thought that was a neat statement. And so I think about how, we, how can we encourage one another. We need to put our thinking caps on and begin to, to reach out to one another. It's easy to, to sit at home and to, and to, uh, or, or to uh, be stuck working it from home or whatever you're, you find, the situation you find yourself in and, and not be reaching out to others. And you're missing them, but you're not reaching out to them. And you're wondering why they're not reaching out to you. Well, reach out to them. Just reach out. And see what God does. Henry Cloud, in a book called How People Grow, writes this. He says, virtually every emotional and psychological problem from addictions to depression has alienation or emotional isolation at its core or close up. Isolation, key to those things. Recovery from these problems involve helping people get more connected to each other at deeper and healthier levels than they are. Simple solution, reach out. Research shows that. The scriptures talk about that. Call someone and just pray with them this week. Just call them. And say, can I pray for you? What can I pray for you? And then, can I pray for you now? And then pray for them. That would be a great step. Because, you know, standing as a group is powerful. And Jesus intended for us to do that. We've seen that in our culture recently. We've seen protests. And what happens? People are listening. People begin to listen because large groups of people are standing up and standing together. You see that in, in people getting signatures. If they want to change something in their, in their neighborhood or in their community, they, they try to get a lot of signatures. Why do they have a lot of signatures? Because they want to get somebody's attention that this is important and that a lot of people are thinking about it. And I think about that in regard to the church. Why did God create the church? So that people would see a collective testimony of believers in Jesus Christ. The world needs to see that. We don't have to be anybody exciting, dynamic, whatever. We just, person after person after person who's following Jesus, people, all of a sudden, they begin to take notice and go, what's going on here? There must be something significant here. And so just the very fact that we believe and that we abide in Jesus and that we walk in faith and that we walk in the Spirit of God and that we're trusting Him during these times, we're praying to Him and we're reaching out to others makes a huge difference in the lives of those around us. Our world is changing. Much to our chagrin, whether you like it or not, it's changing. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is Jesus winning? I mean, Jesus says, I have overcome the world, right? Is Jesus winning? 
You look around you and you think, wow, it doesn't look like Jesus is winning. It looks like the world is winning. It looks like things are going in the world's direction. I want to tell you something right now. Don't believe it for a minute. I have overcome the world. He's already won the victory. He has already won. And he is continuing to win on a day-by-day basis to fulfill exactly what he has already won. And he wants us to walk in, in that victory. He wants us to walk by faith. He wants us to walk as overcomers in him. And so we need to understand that as we come before him. As we look at this passage, I want us to think about the fact that he has already won. Since when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and I want to stop there because that is a really important place. It's a place where, where uh, uh, Jesus has taken his disciples. He's taken them on a field trip. And in fact, if you look at the passage before it, he feeds the 5,000 at the end of chapter 15. And then at the beginning of chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's around the Sea of Galilee, which is in the northern part of uh, Israel. Uh, You see the uh, Dead Sea uh, down at the bottom with Jerusalem to the left and then the Jordan River going up. Then you see the the next body of water, that's the Sea of Galilee. And then you go north to Caesarea Philippi. Well, he was was around the Sea of Galilee and he, he... is where he fed the 4,000. And then he also uh, had this, these people saying, we need a sign from heaven. And he says, the only sign you're going to get is a sign of Jonah. That's it. What was the sign of Jonah? Three days in the belly of the whale, right? Or the big fish. Now, I thought of something this week and I didn't get a chance to research it. So I might make a good research topic. And I never thought about it this way. Did Jonah die and then get raised from the dead? Or did he live through three days in the, and you know, I, I think in my mind, I must have had a picture of, you know, if you remember the old uh, Pinocchio where Geppetto's in the big whale, you know, and he's got all this air to breathe and he's just kind of, you know, living above the water inside the, and I was thinking, I think that's what we think in our minds, but it might've been more like waterboarding if you're stuck in there and water's going over your face all the time. And I think if you lived, it'd be terrifying. And if you died, well, then maybe he was actually, it was just an interesting thought. I had not thought of that before. I just always kind of pictured him alive and didn't really think about any further than that. Well, he starts off with the sign of Jonah and then he talks about the leaven, but then he gets into, he takes him to Caesarea. But then when he comes, when he, when he gets done with that, it says in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And so I was thinking, wow, he bookends here with the resurrection. He starts in, in, in 16.4 uh, and talks about the sign of Jonah. And then here he is at the end, uh, near the end of the chapter, and he's talking about being killed and being raised from the dead. And so I think that that is a controlling feature for what's going on in Caesarea Philippi. So keep that in mind. I think that's crucial to our understanding. So he takes them north on a field trip to Caesarea Philippi. Why does he go there? This is a place that's named after Caesar 
who was Titus at that day, and Philip, who was the, uh, son, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Uh, when Herod the Great died, he became in charge of this area, area, and so he wanted to honor Caesar and himself, and so he called it Caesarea Philippi. It was a place where there was a worship of the god Pan. The worship of the god Pan happened usually uh, in a place that was a grotto or a cave. And this is where Caesarea uh, Philippi is. This is the key feature of that. And it's got this cave on the left. And you have the little small grotto where they would put a, a statue to Pan, who was a very disgusting god, by the way. He was half man, half goat, very promiscuous. He would, his, one of his best buddies was Bacchus, who was the, uh, or Dionysius, who was the god of wine. Uh, and so here was uh, uh, this god Pan at night. They would party, they would dance. He was supposed to be the uh, protector of shepherds, which I think is kind of interesting because Jesus said, I am the good shepherd in John chapter 10. So in direct contrast to this place, to this God, uh, it, it represented immoral lifestyle. It represented all sorts of decadence. And, and so here was this worship there. And in fact, it, in Jesus' day, it may have looked more like this. This is what an artist rendering is of this place with people walking around. And there's a... a, 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 a temple right there in front of that grotto or cave where they would offer sacrifices and that cave actually in in Jesus time would have had water in it It'd been full of water it's where the spring was and uh, there was an earthquake since that day that caused the spring to no longer well up in there and they would take the sacrifice and throw it in that thing and it would disappear and they considered that the gates of hell so Jesus has taken his disciples from Galilee, and he's taking them to a place that's north, up near Dan, which is called the Gates of Hell, which is worshiping a god of, of, called Pan, and, and uh, they would offer to him goats and lambs. He was a, a nature god. In fact, today, Wiccans typically will, will recognize Pan as a uh, sort of deity, and there's a worship that, that goes on even in our own day. And so it's continued on even though in this location there's, there's nothing. And so you look at that and you think, wow, Jesus has taken his disciples into a place that had to be very uncomfortable for them. Pan was also somebody you wanted on your side in, in terms of war because he was thought to bring panic upon the enemy. And so you'd want him to bring panic and might even pray to him during war to bring uh, panic. He was, carnal gratification was, was, was part of what he was all about. In Roman times, the word pan was kind of played upon and this idea of that he is the all-knowing God or he is, he is the God of all. We get our word pandemic all endemic meaning people all people we get the word pan from the word all the greek word all and so pan would have been seen in roman times and i don't know if in jesus's time would have been seen seen as as the universal god so here we are jesus taking him to the heart of pagan religion and it's here 
Betty asked the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? As we see in Matthew 16 and verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now that term Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7 is where that term originated. That had the four beasts coming up out of the water. And then talking about this Son of Man. It talked about the Ancient of Days. And after he describes these four beasts, or some of the beasts, he says, I saw the night, uh, in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so here is this everlasting dominion that's given to this one son of man. I mean, it's, it's Jesus, right? I mean, that's the, that's the focus. That should have been the answer whenever people, when Jesus was saying, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? I mean, they're all over the map, right? They're saying he's everything. In fact, I, I started thinking about that. It'd be an interesting thing to do this week. I would encourage you to do it. Ask one of your friends, call them, whatever you need to do, email them. Now I would talk to them personally and ask them this question that Jesus asked. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Or who do people say that Jesus is? When you listen to people, who do they say? What do they say about him? And just listen. Listen to what they say. And then after you hear their answer, ask the follow-up. So what do you think? Who do you think he is? Now, the minute you ask that question and they give their answer, you know what the follow-up question is going to be, right? So what do you think? And that's your opportunity to give your testimony. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he was the one who was to come. I believe he's my savior. And here's what happened to me and here's how I came to know him personally. I think it's a great opportunity if they ask it. They may not follow up with that. If they don't, don't go there. Just wait. He says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Now notice, he said who the son of man is in his question. He's not preempting the answer because Peter says son of God. He doesn't use the same term, son of man. He uses son of God. Son of man tends to focus on his, his humanity. Son of God tends to focus on his deity. And so he's, he's saying, you are divine. You are the holy one from God. You are God himself. You are God in the flesh. You are Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, that's a, that's a powerful thing. You are the Christ. Christ meaning uh, the anointed one. It's the Greek word. The Hebrew word is Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the one that, that, that God promised to Adam and Eve that the, the seed of the woman would crush the, the serpent's head. You're the one that Job talks about. I know that my Redeemer lives and on the last day he'll stand up on the earth. You're the one that Daniel talked about in Daniel 7 that is going to be given dominion. I mean, you look at that and you kind of, it gives me chills to think about what, what Peter's saying here when he makes this pronouncement and he's making it at this place. 
where people are afraid of this God. They're afraid of the world that's going on around them. And when you look at all the decadence that's going on there, you realize we, in our culture, in our society, have some of the same things going on. And I'm sure that as the disciples are standing there, it looks like Pan is winning. You have these beautiful temples. Jesus doesn't have any beautiful temples. It has this beautiful place. Water is one of the, the, the sources of the Jordan River right here in this place. The springs that are here is one of the sources of the Jordan River even to this day. And so you realize nobody comes to a conclusion that Jesus is the Christ by taking a poll of the people. In our day, people will say all things about Jesus. More so than even in the past. I don't know if they even still say that he's a good moral teacher. I don't know if they would still say that he was a good person, and yet people seem to have positive views about Christ. I love what C.S. Lewis did when he talked about Jesus and Jesus claims to be God and, and he said he can't be a good moral teacher. He, he can't be anything other than he, either he's Lord or he's liar or he's a lunatic because he's either who he said he was and he's Lord or he's not who he said he was and he knew it so he's a liar or he's not who he said he was and he really thinks he still is and so he's a lunatic. And so he, he thought through that and he kind of came up with this logical flow chart. Either his claims were false or they were true. If they were false, then he knew he was a liar or didn't know and he was a lunatic. Or his claims were true and he is truly Lord. And if he is that, then you can either accept him or reject him. And that was C.S. Lewis's claims about Christ. And when you look at Jesus, if he rose from the grave, then he is who he said he is. And when you look at the evidence there, and I would encourage anybody who struggles with that, look at the evidence for the resurrection. Read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity or Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter or, or his uh, Evidence That Man's a Verdict if you want a lot of detail. Because Jesus rose from the grave. C.S. Lewis was trying to disprove it. Josh McDowell was trying to disprove it. Harold Morrison and Who Moved the Stone trying to disprove the resurrection. And they were brilliant people and every one of them led themselves to Christ as they were looking through the evidence of the resurrection. And Peter, who was walking with him, who could have easily said, well, I know all his weaknesses, or I know, I've seen him in these situations. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, there's a, A.W. Uh, Tozier, uh, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, talks about God. And he makes this statement about him. He says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he 
in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. So what do we believe about God? What do we believe about Jesus Christ? Who is he? Who do men say that I am? Peter's response, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one who's to come. You're the one Isaiah calls the suffering servant. You're the one who died for our sins. You're the one that all the prophets bore witness to. Wow. He is the son of man. He is who he said he was. And so when we look at that, we have to look at uh, what he goes on to say. He says, and Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, Jesus is saying, uh, if you would have taken a poll of the people, you would never have come up with your answer. So let me tell you a little bit more, verse 18. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, there's a play on words between the name Peter and the word rock. The word Peter, Petros, masculine, uh, and it means a small rock. And on this rock, Petra, feminine, means a large rock. In fact, if uh, some of you, it kind of tells my age, there used to be a, uh, a Christian group called Petra. And they based it on this, this word here. But when you have this play on words, many people would look at that and say, well, that rock is Peter. And you'll see that some have, have looked at this passage and said, therefore, the Pope is, is one of, of the descendant of Peter. Peter, there's a primacy there, that he is prime or, or, or first. And so the whole church was built on him. And I got to ask a question, who's the foundation of the church? What does scripture tell us about who the foundation of the church is? It's Jesus. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no one can lay a foundation other than one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you go back to this passage, and so you say, what is this rock that he's pointing back to? It, uh, in, in Greek grammar, and a lot of, in fact, a lot of languages, if you have an antecedent to something, it needs to agree in gender and number, and this one doesn't do that. Peter is masculine, this rock is feminine. So it doesn't agree. So it must be pointing to something else. I think it's pointing to the statement, you are the Christ. The reason I think that is because when you look at this passage, I think the whole passage is not ecclesiological or focused on the church. I think it's soteriological, focused on salvation. And so uh, the reason I think that is the beginning of the chapter. You'll have the sign of Jonah, three days, the resurrection. What is it that he's talking about at the end? Third day, he's going to be raised. The focus is on Christ. The focus is on his resurrection. The focus is on our salvation that comes by the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And so I think this whole passage needs to be read in that light. And interestingly, some who don't hold that Peter is, is prime or, or the first pope or whatever will go down to that 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And they'll look at that and say, that refers to the church and it refers to church discipline. And I think, wait a minute. If the first part is not focused on the church, why would this part be? I think it's referring to salvation as well. That we have the message that looses people, that sets people free. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. You sh- uh, uh, which talks about there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. I think that's the thing that looses us. That's the thing that sets us free that when we share Christ with the world around us, they are set free. I think that's really key to understanding what he's going to say next. He says, I will build my church. In other words, it's not my job to build Mansfield Bible or build the church. It's not your job to do that. Our job is simply to be faithful to him. Our job is simply to do what Jesus tells us in, in verse 24. It's deny himself and take up his cross. Follow me. That's what we're supposed to do. And as we do that collectively, then Jesus is going to use that to build the church. Because as we collectively proclaim his name, uh, that's going to be powerful. We, every time we have communion, if you, if you notice in 1 Corinthians, the saying that, that's at the end of it is that as we take every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's name until he comes or proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we're doing that, we're doing that collectively and, and those who come in see this collective observance, this collective recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of God. He is the savior of the world that we believe that he rose from the grave. And it's powerful. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of actually the word is Hades that's used there. So hell is actually a mistranslation, I think, of this word uh, because uh, Hades is mentioned in Revelation. Usually they're used interchangeably in our, in our language, but they weren't necessarily interchangeable because in Revelation uh, 21, it says that death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so this is, uh, that's another discussion for another day, but the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Now, gates are usually a defensive structure, and so it means that the church is on the move. The church is going after the gates of hell. The church are gates of Hades. The church is the one who is on the aggressive step. How are we on the aggressive step? We're sharing Jesus. We're sharing sharing what will free people from their sins, the gospel of our salvation, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave. And so... When it talks about this idea that the gates of hell will not overwhelm it. Why will it not overwhelm it? Because it's the church. It's us collectively. It's our collective testimony. Sharing Christ. Living together. Strengthening one another. Encouraging one another in our faith. Because Jesus cares about the church overcoming in him. Through him. Strengthened by him. Who do you say that he is? If you want to overcome, if Jesus is in you, then greater is he that is in you that is in the world. And so what do we need to do in response? James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so we submit ourselves to him. It doesn't mean we talk to the devil. It doesn't mean we argue with him. We just submit to God and resist Satan. 
That's all we do because he's greater in us. We put on the full armor of God that Ephesians 6 talks about. In Hebrews chapter 12, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And so we run with endurance. That's how we can endure. That's how we can be strong. Because Hades' influence has no power over those who are born of God and who are overcomers and who are in him and who, who have the power of the Spirit of God to strengthen us in all that we do. So it views how I, change, I, I look at the world. The world is not winning. Jesus has already won. And you are an overcomer and as you are in him, you have already overcome. And it just goes to begin to live what we already are. I read an article this week that was talking about a church in, in uh, a black church in, in the United States that was going to pull out of the Southern Baptist Convention. The pastor's name is, and I don't, I'm probably going to mess it up, but John Onwuchekwa. He made this statement when he was talking about why they were pulling out. He says, when you have a diverse group of people sharing solidarity around a worthy concern, you'll end up with getting both unity and equality. Where you merely aim for being undivided, you get neither. We need a church that has solidarity around a worthy concern. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a worthy concern. Jesus Christ, who he is, is a worthy concern. That we believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who fulfills all prophecy. Who was born in Bethlehem. As Micah said. And one day he will place his foot on the Mount of Olives. And it will be split in two. And we'll see the completion of what Jesus Christ has done according to Zechariah. We serve an incredible Savior. And if we want to overcome, it means we do it together. It means that we encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It means that you pray for one another. It means to encourage one another. It means that you stand up for one another. It means that you share stories of faith, some things that God has done, how he's answered prayer for you. And as you begin to do those things, it encourages us to continue to walk in faith. And to know that we have a risen Savior who is Jesus Christ the Lord who died for us and rose from the grave and he has overcome the world. He has already won. And what we long for in our hearts is that day when he will complete it all. But until then, we are with the history of the church who is, who is hidden in catacombs, who today in China are getting beaten up and churches are being destroyed, who in India, uh, in northern India, are being attacked uh, uh, for their faith. And I think we stand together as the church, as Jesus is building it, and the world is not winning. The gates of hell will not overcome it. Father, we come to you this morning and I pray that you would help us to be those who deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. I pray that you would help us to be those who share our faith. I pray that there would be some today that would ask somebody else the two questions. Who do people say that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? And I pray that we would see some 
great conversations happen. Father, I pray that there would be people here who would call somebody that may be struggling through this time and just encourage them and just share with them what God is doing through them. That together we would stand with one another for a worthy cause, which is your name, lifting it up, honoring your name before our world around us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not just sit back and get frustrated with what we see happening. We would not just sit back and complain, but we would be actively encouraging other believers in Christ, that we would be actively sharing our faith with those who don't know you. And Father, I pray that we would see revival here in this place among our people. We would see revival in our hearts I pray that we would cling by faith to what you have said is true. I have overcome the world and not to what we see where it seems like the world is winning. It's not winning. It's already lost. And it only wins when it puts its faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would use the likes of us to make a difference where we are in the life of at least one person. And I pray that you would begin some discussions with people here and, and their friends that would continue on. And I pray that there would be people that come to know you as their Savior. Lord, strengthen our hearts, strengthen our faith. Help us to be the overcomers that you've called us to be. And that you've called us that we are. Born of God, our overcomers. Thank you, Jesus that we overcome in you. Help us to walk in your spirit. Help us to walk by faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.